Schwab Trading is now powered by Ameritrade to give you a new, elevated trading experience tailor-made for trader minds. Go deeper with Thinkorswim, the powerful, award-winning trading platforms now at Schwab. Unlock support from the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders who live and breathe trading like you do. And sharpen your skills with an expanding library of online education crafted just for traders. All designed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Intelligence. We're really getting into now the streaming arms race. This is looking at that and saying we can really build a nice niche for ourselves. In-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. The dollar is the dominant concept in the planet. I think the acquisition is a natural progression of what Microsoft can do with this technology going forward. Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. Over the next hour, we're going to dig inside the big business stories impacting Wall Street and the global markets. Each and every week, we provide in-depth research and data on some of the 2,000 companies and 130 industries our analysts cover worldwide. So today, we're going to take a look at Volkswagen, the German car makers riding in the fast lane with hopes of swiping Tesla's BEV crown in a race to the top. Plus, we get a mid-year outlook on U.S. midstream litigation and policy. But first, it has been a very dramatic couple weeks for central bankers, and a lot of that yield differential is played out in the currency market. So let's get the take from Audrey Child Freeman coming to us from London on the ECB and her outlook on the euro's exchange rate with the dollar. All right, Audrey, can we get the euro to 110 or are we going to get to parity first? How do you look at the yield differentials, the central bank differentials feeding into the FX market? Certainly for the time being, the, the risk remains strongly tilted to the downside. And, and to be honest, I'm, I'm quite surprised the euro is not trading lower at the moment. If you look at the two key drivers for the G10 market uh, right now, one is the risk environment, and we can touch on that later, and that's clearly still negative for the euro. But the other driver is the yield differential. And as you said, that's continuing to be negative for, for the euro. Um, so the Fed is well ahead of, of the ECB in terms of exit strategy. And on top of that, it's telling us that it will stay aggressive for the time being. We kind of expecting uh, U.S. rates to peak in the range of three and a half to four percent. So the absolute yield differential remains con convincingly uh, supportive for the dollar. However, uh, we had a little bit of a game changer, um, you know, earlier in, in June with the ECB actually signaling that uh, a, a rate hike is on its way. Uh, in July with 25 basis points, and that will be followed by uh, more rate rises in September and, and December. So that, that should be bullish for, for the euro in theory, but the problem is that as the ECB enters into exit strategy and raises interest rates, 
we are facing the problem of fragmentation. Audrey, were you surprised, like a lot of us here in New York were surprised, at that ECB meeting, kind of meeting, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago where the ECB didn't really do much? I mean, and that kind of is the problem there. How do you think the ECB is, is kind of viewing its role here? I think the ECB was a little was behind the curve to be honest in terms of signaling the the, the rate rises that 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 was fine but uh, where it was uh, behind is in terms of being prepared and being ready to address any problems associated to the rate increases in, in the eurozone and in terms of problem I'm talking about this widening in, in intra-european spread so we had this um, ad hoc meeting that the ECB tried to reassure the market and it, it kind of managed because since then the euro has been relatively contained at around 105 but I think the market will run out of patience very soon. Um, well Thursday was interesting because Thursday we got PMI data that was terrible in Europe and terrible in the US and there is a school of thought that we already had seen demand destruction coming in into Europe because we have such a supply-driven inflation. It's coming surprisingly hard and fast. And I'm wondering if the data is going to deteriorate relatively more in the U.S. than in Europe that will also then lend some support uh, to the euro. Well, uh, that's, you know, that's the next key topic of discussion, I think, for, for the market, for the currency market, but I think for all asset classes. What kind of recession are we getting in the U.S. and elsewhere? And how soon is it coming? Is it going to come before in Europe or in the U.S.? And you could be tempted to say, yes, it's coming before in Europe. And therefore, at some point, this is going to turn, the narrative is going to turn and become more supportive with, 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 for the euro. The only thing I'm very wary of still is that if we get a hard landing in the U.S., and if this is coming with a sharp risk-off move, i.e. a big sell-off in the equity market globally, ironically, you could see the dollar rally because you have a big risk-off move. And, and you know that that's usually associated with a stronger dollar. So for, if you're euro bullish, what you have to hope is that we get some kind of a soft landing and then very quickly the market moves on to the next theme, which is, how soon do we get to the high in the interest rate cycle? And how soon are the central banks uh, going to start to contemplate uh, easing the next phase of the cycle? Audrey, what do you think hedge funds are doing now? And from a currency perspective, are they buying the euro here saying, boy, if I'm not at the bottom, I'm pretty darn near at the bottom? I, I just feel that there is a lack of strong conviction in the market at the moment. It's very difficult to, first of all, identify what the drivers are going to be next. And, but I think to me, the, the key driver for you to get back into buying the euro is do you believe that we have seen a low in, in the equity market? And I feel that there's still too much uncertainty to answer that question. And there's still too much macro uncertainty, and we talked about that. Um, I, I just feel that it's just too uncertain to get back in. So I'd rather stay, hold on to my dollars for now mm -hmm. and just wait and feel more comfortable with the outlook and then join the party uh, on, on your dollar outside. I, I feel that there's more merit in being a little bit late uh, in the rally when it comes than trying to pick a, bot a, a low when there's no really reason to, to pick a low apart from the fact that 
you know, it's down 15% from its high right. from last year. Things can always go down more. <laughs> it's something that we've definitely uh, learned. All right, Audrey, thanks very much. We really appreciate it. Bloomberg Intelligence Analyst Audrey Child Freeman. Coming up the program, we're going to talk Volkswagen. It is getting serious about the electric vehicle business. You're listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence through BI Go on the terminal. I'm Alex Steele. And I'm Paul Sweeney. It's 13 minutes past the hour, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. All right, Alex, you may not know this, but I recently was given the opportunity to test drive a Ford F-150 Lightning. <gasps> that is the electric F-150. I had it for about four or five days. The good folks at Ford Motor Company were kind enough to uh, let me tool around in one. So I feel like I'm completely prepared for our next guest. Our wait, next first topic. of all, and? Awesome. 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 <laughs> first time I've driven a pickup, pickup truck. First time I've driven an electric vehicle. Uh, thumbs up to both, although you're never going to see me driving around in a pickup truck. Um, all right, Michael Dean. He covers all this auto stuff uh, for us out of London. Michael joins us here. So, again, I've been asking this question for a while, and smart guys like you and Kevin Tynan have always said, hey, when they think they can make money, the big traditional auto manufacturers are going to come in big to EVs, and that seems to be what's happening right now. Talk to us about Volkswagen, Michael. Yeah, so um, we actually had a report out this week which said that Volkswagen could potentially take over Tesla's Bev Crown in 2024, and that's because they have numerous new models coming out. Uh, they're building 12 factories, and they're going to have capacity of between 2 and 2.5 million in 2024, which is very similar to Tesla, and it's really two succeeds in China. Uh, will decide who, who will be the leader in beds, I think, over the next um, couple of years. Now, the other side would be like, hey, look, there's so much demand. It's going to be huge. There's room for everyone to play. They make different types of cars for different markets, say Tesla and Volkswagen. What, what, what's your pushback to that one? Yeah, if you Tesla, they need new products. Otherwise, they're you know selling to a limited market. Yes, they have the Cybertruck coming out in late 2023. But as Paul just mentioned, you know Ford have the F- F-150 Lightning. So they've lost the first move advantage there. So, you know, the the BEV scope at the moment is very much in the premium space. And that's where Volkswagen can catch up with its Audi and Porsche brands. So it just seems like in the U.S. at least, you got to have the pickup truck market because that's where the real money is. Talk to us about kind of the demand that you're sensing from some European buyers and consumers. Yeah, it's very different. So if you look at the sort of 10, top 10 selling BEVs in Europe, you've got the Tesla Model 3 and the Model Y as the top two selling cars. But if you look in general, Volkswagen has actually overtaken um, Tesla in terms of market share for Bev. It has a 19% mm. market share with its various brands versus uh, Tesla at 12%. So it's very much a car-orientated market. So if it's able to take over uh, in the U.S. and sort of top Tesla, what does it have to do? Is it just about the Porsche and the Audi? Like, What do they have to do to deliver that 2024 forecast? Yeah, so it's it's Europe. So they're in the lead in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, they've got a plant in uh, Chattanooga, which is going to which has just started producing BEVs, and it's going to have to produce some SUVs to make an impact there. Mm-hmm. But it's really China where they they need to succeed to win the win the race. So Volkswagen has about sixteen percent market share in China, but only a three point five percent BEV market share. That compares to Tesla on ten percent. So Volkswagen really needs to to get these new models out into the, the Chinese market if it's going to succeed and overtake uh, Tesla in 2024. Talk to us about just the performance side of the market. I know uh, Volkswagen owns Porsche. I mean, I always thought one of the reasons 
you know, the Matt Millers of the world and Barry Ritholtz of the world have their big muscle cars, you know, whether it's a Porsche or a Ferrari or Lamborghini or whatever, is the loud sound. And I'm just wondering, <laughs> on the high end of the market, is the expectation that the demand is going to be there as well for EVs? Yeah, I think so. So I attended the Ferrari Investor Day um, last week. Where was that? Someone has to do it. That was in Maranello. Ugh, and killing me. So they're going to be at 20% BEVs in 2025 and 40% in, in 2030. And what Porsche has shown with the Taycan is that you can succeed with a luxury vehicle without having the noise, as long as it's got good handling and good performance. And also what Porsche has over Tesla at the moment, it has faster recharging time. Um, that's an excellent point. I the- there's two parts. Okay, let's go with supply chain first. Um, Elon Musk said uh, at the Qatar Economic Forum this week that the biggest problem that they're going to have and the biggest competition isn't going to come from like a GM and Ford. It's going to come from the actual supplies, like the lithium, the cobalt, etc. Even if Volkswagen production-wise is set up to deliver the kind of vehicles in China and the U.S. and in Europe, can it? Yes, battery supply is going to be so important. You haven't just got Volkswagen uh, chasing Tesla. You've got all the global automakers that all need to uh, build numerous um, battery plants and they all need to get uh, significant raw materials for these batteries. So, yeah, there's, there's going to be a supply constraint for batteries, I think, certainly in 24-25, and that's going to impact everybody. Talk to us about how you think Tesla's role in this sector will kind of evolve. Um, obviously, they were the leaders. Um, but as these big OEMs, the Volkswagens, the General Motors, the Fords of the world really ramp up, are they going to be more of a niche player, do you think? Or how do you think that's going to shake out? Yeah, you, you kind of touched on it earlier. And what our report shows is that, you know, towards 24 and 25, it's only really Volkswagen that's challenging Tesla. And if you look at the other automakers, they're all sort of hanging around at the 1 million uh, BEV sales mark um, in 2025. And that's because the profit incentive just isn't there at the moment. Most automakers are just selling enough cars to meet emission legislation. Mm. And it's not until you get the next generation of digitalized platforms uh, with proprietary software on a much bigger scale that you'll see all automakers building more beds. What about charging stations? Where are we? That's the other thing. It's like you got to make the cars, but then you got to sell them, and people got to want them because there's that they can actually charge it. Well, that's the other issue. If you, if you look at who owns a bev at the moment, normally it's a second car, mm-hmm. it's a wealthier household, so they have you know an ICE, an internal combustion engine car, to use for longer distances. And yeah, infrastructure needs to prove massively um, if uh, you know the wider market is going to take on beds. You've got a situation in China at the moment where you see people actually queuing up at charging stations for hours because uh, there's, there's not enough uh, charging points. That could happen in other places if we don't improve our infrastructure. So, Michael, talk to us about ultimately where you think an, you know battery electric vehicle will be priced here. Uh, the Lightning I drove, for example, sticker price, $94,000 US. And that's just like the basic, right? And then no, the this was and all the souped up. This had everything. Oh, okay, that was this had up. everything. So my question is, are we going to get an entry-level EV? Is there, can the automakers make money doing that? Well, they, they certainly can't at the moment with, with current generation uh, models. So that, that's, um, you know, the task, and that's what they're trying to do with this next generation of platforms, as I say, coming out in 2024-25. We need battery prices to keep falling. They've actually risen this year, and that's because, you know, raw material prices, prices has increased. So, yeah, it's really tough. Uh, for them to come out with a cheaper model. And as I say, we probably won't see that for another three years. And it's going to be the second half of this decade when I see the market share for beds really take off because there'll be more cheaper products available. All right, good stuff. Uh, Michael D., next time you're in the States, we're getting you in a real pickup truck. 
Uh, so you can <laughs> see that. Oh, wait. Running down the street. All right, Bloomberg Intelligence Analyst Michael Dean. All right, coming up on the program, we're going to talk to Ken Shea, senior analyst, and focus on what the FDA just did to Juul. Blew up their e-cigarette business, had huge implications for Altria that owns uh, a 30-plus stake uh, in Juul. We'll break that down. You're listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies in 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence via BI Go on the terminal. I'm Paul Sweeney. And I'm Alex Steele. It's 25 minutes past the hour, and this is Bloomberg. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, giving you even more specialized support than ever before. Like access to the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders ready to tackle anything from the most complex trading questions to a simple strategy gut check. Need assistance? No problem. Get 24-7 professional answers and live help and access support by phone, email, and in-platform chat. That's how Schwab is here for you, to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. We'll be here each and every week at this time, tapping into our Bloomberg Intelligence analysts covering some 2,000 companies and 130 industries worldwide. So the FDA really drove a stake through the heart of Juul uh, this week. So uh, Juul is the e-cigarette maker. Um, Altria owns about a 30-plus percent stake in it. And on Thursday, the FDA said that the company must stop selling and distributing the products and that those that are on the market must be removed or risk enforcement action, a total shift for a company that was the darling of the e-cigarette craze. Um, here to break it down with us is Ken Che, Bloomberg Intelligence Analyst. Hey, Ken, can you walk us through what the FDA said and sort of why and what the thinking is here? Yes. Hi, Alex. Sure. Juul is really the, um, the market leader in the about $7 billion e-cigarette category in the U.S. A category, by the way, is growing at a solid 10, 15 percent. So it is growing nicely, despite all the controversy. Uh, the FDA came out today, and in there, what they call a marketing denial order, basically, it's got to come, uh, all Juul products need to come off the market, uh, basically said that uh, they felt that there wasn't sufficient evidence that Juul provided them that would convince them that these products were more good for society than bad for society. That's kind of a simple way to put mm -hmm. it. They felt that um, there were some harmful chemicals that were emanating from the device, and I, you know, reading between the lines, though, I must say that Juul was in 
uh, a lot of hot water a few years ago when it fell in the hands of children and they they didn't help their cause by coming out with some flavors like creme brulee and and some of the berry <laughs> candy flavors that got them in trouble. Like so bubble gum, like bubble gum easy as well. So I mean, this is kind of a, a, a huge about face to me, Ken. I wasn't even really aware this was kind of a thing here. But didn't this product, this technology, go through rigorous FDA approval process years ago before even getting to the market? This just seems like a an odd 180. You know, it really didn't, though, Paul. See, that's what makes this thing so strange, this whole episode. And that is, a few years ago, when these e-cigarettes came to market, the FDA at the time allowed them to come to market because the thinking was, well, in their minds that these products were, uh, while they weren't 100% healthy in their minds or safe, they were certainly better than a combustible cigarette. So they felt that if, they, if a user moved from cigarettes to these devices, they thought there was a net positive for society. So they allowed a lot of these products to come to market, even though they didn't pass muster what the FDA normally requires for tobacco products, pre-market approval. Mm. They kind of grandfathered them and said, okay, someday in the future, you'll apply as if these products were not on the market, and we'll decide whether they belong there or not. I know it's rather strange. Uh, and over the last two years, the FDA has been looking at, at all these electronic cigarette devices with the idea of saying some are going to come off the market because they just don't pass muster with what we feel is adequate safety to society. So Altria spent billions of dollars to buy a 35% stake in the company. And this was when like tobacco companies are like, oh, my God, we, we have to find a way to diversify right. at this point. What kind of write down could Altria be looking at? And is there any way to salvage this? Well, Altria paid $12.8 billion for this business a few years ago. It's already been written down. Carrying value is about $1.6 billion. I wrote a note yesterday saying I think um, all $1.6 could be written down because basically just their business now in the U.S. They have a small portion outside, but it's mostly U.S. business now. Um, what could they do with it? Well, if it's not allowed on the market, I'm not sure how many buyers are going to be lining up for this. Uh, it's a good question you ask. I don't know what they can do with it. I think they're probably huddling up and trying to think through that right now. The first thing they could probably do is challenge the decision. Mm-hmm. They'll go to the FDA and say, you know, we're, we're going to uh, challenge this in court. Uh, good luck with that. The FDA has had plenty of time to think through this. They probably have their defenses in line. The challenge that Altria has here is they don't have a lot of fallback in terms of diversification from its cigarette business, which, you know, it's about 85 90% of their profits. And, you know, they do have a small smokeless tobacco, you have a Copenhagen skull uh, moist snuff business, but that's really just about it. And they were really looking at uh, Juul and a, a marketing arrangement it has with Philip Morris International through, you know, its ICOS uh, heating device products. Yep. That kind of fell through. So it's really kind of stuck right now. It it's almost has to go back to square one to come up with a product that could be seen as an alternative to cigarettes. So is this really, from the FDA's perspective, uh, a medical issue, medical risk issue, or is it a marketing issue that perhaps the the Juul folks were, you know, marketing to kids and others? You know, Paul, I think it's a little of both. The the written decree that they put out today on the FDA site really points to the uh, toxicology examination. They don't really talk about marketing that much. But clearly, um, you know, if you go back in time a couple of years ago, that, that, that's where Juul got in trouble from the FDA. They said, you're not marketing these things responsibly. And while the, their house has been in order more recently uh, with regard to their marketing, again, you know, I, I think what is probably, is my opinion, <laughs> is probably weighing on this decision at the FDA is some of those past marketing practices I think they're paying for right now. 
Ken, thanks a lot. We really appreciate it. Ken Shea, Bloomberg Intelligence Analyst, joining us on Jewel and Altria. All right, coming up on the program, Brandon Barnes, he's a senior litigation analyst, gives us his mid-year outlook for the U.S. midstream and energy litigation and policy. You're listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence through BI Go on the terminal. I'm Alex Steele. And I'm Paul Sweeney. It's 39 minutes past the hour, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. President Biden's biggest thorn right now are rising pump prices. It's expensive to fill up your car. There's been a big battle between the administration and refiners and oil companies to try and get more supply on the market. But one key part of that is the midstream company. It's how you transport the stuff to and from different locations. Joining us now to discuss is Bloomberg Intelligence senior litigation analyst Brandon Barnes. Um, Brandon, this drama that we're having in the White House over gasoline prices, is this going to make the regulatory overhang on building a pipeline any better? You know, I think any of the issues we've had worldwide, right, with LNG demand through the roof because of the, the Russia-Ukraine saga, you know, you would expect something to change from what we've had in the past, which is a really tough situation for midstream to build. But the actions that have been taken at the federal level with these agencies that are really responsible for permitting and allowing these pipelines to build, they tell the same story over again, which is basically don't try and build anything big. Even if you're building something small, you're probably going to get put through the ringer on the regulatory side. And you don't even know when you're going to be approved to build. Well, I just, the people like me, as I pay, you know, $5 a gallon for gas at the pump, I'm saying, can't they just crank up the refineries? What's the big deal? But that's not really a story, is it? No, no. And, you know, I think oh, you know, that's, a, that's, a, that's a story for, for other of my colleagues to tell, certainly with the refiners running basically flat out. You can't build pipelines. You can't. It's, it just seems like everywhere in the energy space, the regulatory environment is just so difficult, which is understandable. It's been a trend for the last 20 years. I so, boy, consumers are really feeling it today. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because it's not there's there's an ideological bent right in Washington that, that dictates at least it seems in this administration that the push against fossils will directly correlate with help from renewables. But midstream is sort of, you know, this child that's somewhere in between because there are midstream projects that are proposing to transport CO2. There are midstream projects mm. that are proposing to mm. transport hydrogen. You know, these are some, some of the ideas that, that'll bridge us to through the energy transition, but those projects are subject to some of the same regulations that are hitting natural gas and crude right now and hurting their ability to build. If you were to get rid of one regulation that would really help build out pipelines for whichever, for stuff now or stuff later, what would it be? So I would take the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, FERC's um, proposal that they put on the shelf for a little while to change their entire policy. I would take that off the board. That just roiled the whole market. And the uncertainty around that for future projects is, is a kill. What was the policy that they had? So the policy is basically changing a 1999 version of here, if you can show commercial need for the project through you know, long-term agreements for natural gas, you can build it. We'll do our due diligence on the environmental side behind that, but you can build it. The change is that now we're going to take into account everything under the sun when it comes to greenhouse gases and climate change, landowner complaints, you know, environmental justice concerns with various communities being impacted. We're going to bring that all into deciding whether or not you can build 
but we're not going to decide what the requirements are to fill that ideas out until later. So it's very mm. wishy-washy and, and no one knows what's going to happen. And that's not really an environment you want to invest in. So how political is this entire process? If, if we were to get a Republican control of Congress uh, in the midterms and then you know maybe even a Republican in the White House in the next cycle, would we see a material turnaround in maybe the regulatory outlook for some of these midstream uh, investments? This is the funny thing about you know, uh, regulatory versus policy, right? So policy, if we think about bills and things come out of Congress, and, and none of the regulatory is going to change because of whatever happens in the midterms. That, that's pretty much set. Yep. So Biden gets to appoint his people and they're in there. Mm. And they are fulfilling, you know, his executive orders and all the things he wants. They're not going to change. Um, you know, for example, Department of Interior decided we're not holding offshore drilling leases for Gulf of Mexico until 2023 at the earliest. That's not going to change because there's a new Congress in. The agency I mentioned before, FERC, you know, they are responsible for all pipeline siting and LNG siting. So they're really important for building our future for natural gas and LNG. They're not going to change their makeup even by 24. They probably will be about the same through about 25 or even 26. If you're a midstream company, though, and even if the White House changes hands every four or eight years, how how nimble can you be in making these decisions? I mean, these are going to be multi-billion dollar projects that take a long time to build. Or is it as long as the right guy leads FERC, it's okay? That's a great question because it, it really it hasn't been this way before. FERC for years was sort of an apolitical animal. animal. They don't have a budget that's controlled by Congress. They're independent. They were typically just made up of state regulators or utility regulators that came through and were appointed. But only in the last six to eight years have we seen really political appointees being filled, filled in. And those are when we've seen the biggest changes coming through. Mm-hmm. So I think what you've seen from the midstream companies is they sort of dialed it back. There's a lot less of the big builds going out, out right now, unless you're just doing a Texas build or maybe a pipeline feeding an LNG uh, terminal. Right now you're seeing people just doing compression only or small loops, really just upgrades to existing systems. Right. But even those, you know, those are 100 to $500 million projects. Even those are getting crushed. Amazing stuff. All right, Brandon, good stuff. Thanks for joining us there. Brandon Bard's Senior Litigation Analyst looking at the U.S. midstream business. All right, it has been a tough start for investors in 2022. Inflation up, pushing stocks down, big time pushing huge losses in the fixed income market. Is any part of the chain uh, anywhere you want to be? How about the exchanges? Are they making money? They typically like volume. Paul Goldberg, mm-hmm. he follows all the exchange stuff for Bloomberg Intelligence. Paul, talk to us about the exchange. I'm thinking about the CME and the ICE. Talk to us about their businesses as we are in an era of tremendous volatility so far in 2022. Yeah. Uh, exchanges really benefit from volatility in the short term because volatility that is driven by the inflation, in many cases in rates, commodities, even equities and equity options, creates extra volume, which benefits, creates fees for the exchanges. So in the short term, it helps their earnings and profits. In the long term, it can potentially roll over if we hit an economic slowdown. So where are we in that? As I feel like we're in the midst of the beginning of an economic slowdown, I'm wondering if there are big liquidity gaps or margin calls, like what's going on? So if we look at the trading volumes through almost the end of the quarter, equities are up 20%, volumes and rates are up 25%. So 
really everything is moving higher. There hasn't been really any kind of margin calls or issues so far. Um, prices of the exchanges themselves are a very different story, though, as it looks forward. And looking forward, there is building recession risk here. Uh, Paul, give us a sense of just kind of how exchanges is impacted during a recession. There are two types of businesses. Uh, the exchanges typically run the recurring revenues where they sell data or they sell analytical services. And those typically tend to behave similarly to any kind of auxiliary business during the recession. You sell slow and it might turn off a little bit where they typically get about a 5% annual growth. It might slow down from that rate. The other side of the business is the trading business and as investors kind of get scared and move away from the market following the phase of the volatility, that might impact their trading revenues. But it's very difficult to predict how it might turn out because of the behavior and the products are very different from the past recessionary cycles. So if we look at 2008 or 1990s, it's very different the products today for the most part. Hey, Paul, I've, I've long had a conversation that, you know, I've been in this business 30 years and it's really been interesting about how New York, London, and then in Asia, it's Hong Kong. Um, talk to us about, like, what, when you talk to your global exchanges, what are they saying about Hong Kong? Where is the global trading for Asia going to reside to the extent that the Chinese continue to kind of clamp down on Hong Kong? So, so far, I think it's still kind of staying in Hong Kong. Okay. In fact, if you are going to see some potential delistings of Chinese equities in the U.S., and that's still being kind of in the works and the concern, they actually may be able to move to Hong Kong rather than mainland China. So for the time being, I would probably be very comfortable with Hong Kong and the Hong Kong Stock Exchange that operates the business. Would regionally different exchanges feel the volatility and recession risk and inflationary risk differently? Uh, to some extent, I would say yes. Uh, and the biggest factor is the way in the equity space, in the cash equities, because U.S. exchanges price based on the volume, so the number of transactions, whereas the European exchange price on value. So for them, the upside right now will probably be extremely limited because they'll have more trading, but smaller values of the equities, which might kind of cancel each other at the moment. Paul, talk to us about the just the profitability of the exchange business. You know, I don't think a lot of people really think about the the exchanges as a business per se, but talk to us about like the margins. Where are they? Where are they going? Because we hear a lot from fund managers all the time. Oh, the pressure on uh, margins here are difficult. And I wonder if that also applies to the exchanges. So, it, it, I mean, it certainly does. It's a business where that produces the trades or produces a service. So it does. On the service side, the margin could be somewhere in the 40 50% range. On the trading side, the margin could be 60 or 70% range, which is wow. as big as it possibly gets within the financial space. Uh, maybe 1% or 2% pressure on the costs from the inflation that puts a little bit of pressure on margin. But the margins are very strong. And if you think of trading activity, so it's an electronic trading system for the most part, if you get more volume through that system, it doesn't really cost you anything. So incrementally, it just drives through the bottom line. Wow. That's a margin that, like, Colgate would love or something. <laughs> um, all right, Paul, thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. Bloomberg Intelligence analyst Paul Goldberg joining us. That's this week's edition of Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. And remember, you can access Bloomberg Intelligence through BI Go on the terminal. I'm Alex Steele. And I'm Paul Sweeney. It's 57 minutes past the hour, and this is Bloomberg. 
Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.